Welcome back, listeners. Thank you so much for sticking with me through these episodes. Once again, we have a market coming on Saturday, September 2nd in Delcom, Louisiana. Please make sure you're showing some community support to the local vendors. Get your ice chest cleaned out and go wait in line on the dock for some fresh Gulf shrimp. Thank you all for listening to part one of the George Romero interview. Yes, 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 we are back. Welcome to Hold the Gravy, episode 28. Thank you all so much for joining me once again. My name is Hunter Romero. Special thanks to Delcom Seafood and Farmers Market for hosting Hold the Gravy once again. And we are in the middle of a very, very special story being told by Mr. George Romero, who is a shrimper out of Delcom, Louisiana. If you've listened to episode 27, you know that we are halfway through a remarkable, truly remarkable story. And uh, let's get right back into it. This is episode 28. Part two of the George Romero interview. So after that, I just started walking and walking. And I'd walk till I couldn't, till I got too tired, and then I'd take a break and just go down to my knees or sit on my butt for a while and in the sand and catch my breath and take a break. And when I rested a little while, I'd get back up and slow but sure, just kept working my way eastward and there's no there's no houses or anything on you know this side of the state close to um, shore they used to have a settlement at Chenero Tig but I which is between where I was and Freshwater Bayou uh, they used to have an old Acadian settlement there on land and but I don't I don't think there's anything there anymore. After so many storms so. over the years, I'm yeah. sure people have, have. I know they had it kind of as a museum. And they had a few people still there, but that was prior to uh, Rita and Ike and all that. I think. And if you were to walk, not on the beach, and start walking north, what would have would it maybe have been a shorter route than? You were uh, through the marsh. Uh, till you see to, somebody, you know. Yeah, till I'd have to look at the map again, but uh, no, I'd have had a long walk through the marsh from yeah. there. At least you were on sand. You were rolling. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and staying off the beach ways. Um, to anyone that doesn't know, when you're in the water, right up, and I mean it's true for like Vermilion Bay, the edge of the Gulf, whatnot. For the most part, <clears throat> right up along where the marsh or the coast or whatever ends, it's not really where you want to walk. It's hard on the ankles because it's this dark. It's one of two things. It's either this dark, slippery, slippery uh, uh, clay, mm -hmm. black clay full of holes, kind of like Swiss cheese, and then it's not real. It's not smooth. It's it's not an even bottom or nothing. It's where all the erosion takes place. Right. Or it's this coffee grind, uh, real stinky, marsh-smelling, kind of like oversized coffee grinds out of your coffee pot. Right. And that doesn't walk too well either. It don't smell great either. And uh, But if once you get out into the water a ways, 
go a little deeper and a little deeper, you'll notice it changes. And the more you go out away from the actual, where the water ends, uh, you get in the water about waist to chest high. It usually transitions into some fine, real fine, uh, solid sand, which is pretty good to walk on. You just got to be careful. You can't get in a rush and start struggling and whatnot because you will have a few clusters of live oysters, dead oyster shells, clam shells, and whatnot in that sand. So you can't just be slamming your feet down you right. know, and trying to struggle or nothing like this. You got to take your time, walk slow, and feel with your toes. Not to mention you're exhausted. Yeah, well... I wasn't too bad yet. Mostly I'd just been riding up until that. Um, you know, you, you don't pay a waste of energy and try to fight things. Kind of stay in the water between, like I say, waist to chest. Does a couple of things. It's easier to move. It's better walking. And you don't have as much problems with the deer flies and mosquitoes and all that. And to tell you the truth, I've gotten bitten more by mosquitoes since I got back home <laughs> than I did out there. Because I don't <laughs> think I got bit by a single mosquito. Now, I did have a few deer flies try to mess with me, but I'm an old hand for them rascals. <laughs> I just sink everything I am in the water till it's just my nose and my eyes out. And I stick up one arm with the other hand waiting like an alligator. Bait him, and when he comes to land right there, you're not biting me no more. You yeah. bit me once, but that's it. That's now it. You're done. You're not gonna keep digging in my ears and flying around and driving me crazy. Nah. Me and you are gonna deal with this now. Yeah, that's a way to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're inundated by hundreds and hundreds of them, yeah, you oh, might be swarmed. You're in trouble. Of course. You better get a good breath and start trying to swim underwater because, man, they will terrorize you. Especially right there on the coast. It's desolate. Yeah. There's nothing around. They know you're there, you know. Uh, it, it, the worst part is when the wind's not blowing. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's when they find you. Of course. As long as that big south wind, southwest wind was blowing, it kind of helped me. It blows my scent to them, but, but they don't want to get up out the bushes and whatnot and come after me. And plus, I think what really helped was not that long before this occurred, they burned all of that marsh right there. Hmm. They'll do controlled burns. Uh, wildlife and fisheries does it, property owners do it and whatever, through the marsh and all, to uh, uh, it, it refreshes the marsh. Yeah, it's where all the dead grass and bushes and whatnot that are above. And after you burn it, uh, a while back, uh, I mean a while after that, the three-corner grass and even the saltwater grass will grow back real green, sharp and green. It looks like a beautiful green pasture, like planted ryegrass. Wow. And all the animals just love it. Now, once that... Uh, like that coastal uh, saltwater grass, that needle grass, we call it. Once that grows to a certain height and gets, starts getting tough with the points on it, nothing eats that. Yeah. Uh, now, the three-corner grass, 
they'll eat that up to, I don't care if it's this tall. That's what muskrats and nutrirats and stuff like that, that's what they love. Hmm. That and cattle. Yeah. Cattle eat the hell out of that too. Uh, but yeah, they had burned all of that from the beach on in. So I think that was part of the reason I didn't suffer too much with the insects. That's good. That's, oh, a, yeah. that's a blessing. That was definitely a benefit. So that, you're, they had burnt that sometime, I don't know, several weeks before, maybe a month or so, you know, middle of the summer or something, they burnt that. Right. And uh, that, that, I think, was a big help. So I didn't get terrorized by the insects too bad. Uh, I guess at this point. The biggest problem was when I, once I got in the reefs and I was in the pass itself, uh, as I was sleeping Friday night, I kept being awakened. And I'm like, what the heck? I had these little fish. I don't know what kind of fish it was. Uh, it was dark. And uh, I was kind of in water that would have reached me almost to my waist when I stood up. But I was sitting in it and just letting my life jacket hold my head up with my arms folded and just sleeping. Just floating. Just bumping with my butt on the bottom like this, just kind of mostly staying in one place and I was just resting and sleeping and got woken up by uh, these little fish that were like. Right, just pinching you. Yeah, just chewing on me all over. And I'm like, what the hell? Especially around all these cuts and sores. They were eating the scabs off oh, yeah. these sores. And I'm like, get away from me, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> Y'all gonna make them things start bleeding and then them dark old little sand sharks and uh, yeah. uh, black tip sharks are gonna come find me. Then I'm in trouble. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. They woke me up in the middle of the night. <coughs> you, too bad you couldn't. Bit. So I started moving and started walking again, just kind of looking at the stars and the... the the uh, lights of the channel of the pass said, well, okay, the channel's out there and I'm in the reefs right here. I ought to be able to head, you know, kind of like this. I just kept working my way, moving a little bit at a time, resting, taking a nap every now and then the whole night. Well, I was angling myself a little too much to the west and I went way back into the cove. Uh, Southwest Pass has got its own like a bay. Uh, on the west side and it's a whole bunch of reefs and shallow mud flats and stuff that goes way back to the west well i ended up in that big cove about halfway back uh, i didn't want to go that far back i wanted to just make my way swim across the little channel where the boats usually go put anchor that are, that are butterflying in the past and maybe run into one of my friends there yeah uh if not it's only now it's so washed out it's only just a few hundred yards across that point into vermilion bay then if not rescued by then or sometime uh i was going to work my way around to hellhole bayou and try to go for the game warden camp at fairman i don't know if it's still manned or not i hadn't even thought about that uh since the storms i guess it was worth a shot and, but i know. was thinking i knew they had a water well there and you know they had to have some supplies there because uh it is a, it's it's a it's a game warden camp right 
So I said, hell, I don't care if I got to break in or whatever. They can arrest me later, please. Yeah. <laughs> please come and arrest me right now. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anybody. Please. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Come and get me. Helicopter, boat, it don't matter. Just come and get me. Uh, yeah. You can even come on a surfboard. I'll ride that back. Jet ski, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was my plan. And it just so happened that the next morning, I guess about mid-morning, uh, Laurie Ardoin, uh, he picked me up. He was charter fishing. He had some customers that he was taking out fishing. And he said, it's a miracle. He said, because he said, he said, this time of the year, I'd never come back in here. He said, except the way the wind's been blowing so hard and that mudded up the water and it's still a bit too rough to go out in the Gulf uh, to put his customers on some speckled trout. He said, we were back here trying to look around for a few redfish and whatnot. He said, when we spotted you. I said, well, thank God for that. They spotted you before you saw the boat? I, no, I, I think I spotted them first. Okay. And What was going through your mind at that point? I mean. I was like, well, let's try this again. Because there was several times I tried flagging down some helicopters, boats, and all this. And wasn't having too much uh Success. And this was during the daytime? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about sun was up, there was a little while, and uh, it was bright, clear, clear sky, kind of like right now. And what I was doing was I couldn't just, I didn't want to take my live jacket off and all that. I was too tired. So what I'd do is I'd grab handfuls of water and throw it up in the air. And those water droplets, when the sun hits them, the, the way they were positioned, the sunlight hitting that water, it sparkles. Sure. Light reflection. Right. And that's what I was doing. I was throwing water up in the air, threw a few handfuls of water and splashing the water, and then I was waving my arms. And then I'd throw some more water up in the air. And after a few times of that, my arms would get heavy, and I'd just yeah. let them down, and I was watching them. And uh, eventually... I seen Laurie turn his boat. He was running kind of on an angle in front of me. I seen him whip the boat around and head straight for me. I said, oh, man. Wow. Thank God. <laughs> what a relief. Oh, yeah. You talk about. Seeing that boat turn around. I mean. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And he came straight for me wide open. And uh, when they got there, I had my hands folded. And I, I, I was saying my prayer. Wow. What a what a savior! He I mean, got there to lift me out the water, and uh, he said, "Hold on, hold on." He said, "We can get you in on the back of the boat." You know, he had one of those uh, transom-mounted uh, ladders, yep. a little swim ladder and stuff on the back. Said, "Familiar with those, Laura, uh, sir?" I said, "Used to have an outboard. I had one just like it." Right. Uh, the little ladder that folds down and extends. So did you know so this gentleman? So he said, well, gentleman? hold on, hold on. I'm going to get down there and give you a hand. I said, hey, it's fine. I said, I'm not that weak. I said, but I'm pretty tired. I said, but I'm not that weak. So uh, And you knew this this. No, I didn't person. know this guy. Okay. Nope. I know him now. Uh, very nice guy. Used to be a coach uh, slash teacher uh, at Abbeville High. Okay. For years. And he retired. Uh, from teaching in Vermilion Parish, and he started this uh, guide service. Got a beautiful place in in uh, Sippermore Point. Got a nice camp. Got a couple different uh, uh, boats, the way I understand it, that he 
takes people charter fishing out on. And uh, <laughs> weirdest thing was, he said, oh, man, you're my hero, dude. You're my hero. I said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Put the brakes here, cuz. <laughs> the hell with that? I said, you my hero. You're pulling me out of <laughs> the water in the mud right here. You know, well, what you talking about? He said, well, you don't understand. He said, the whole time I've been charter boating like this, he said, that, that is the one thing, he said, that I dread the most. He said, is finding someone in the water or something and it being a body. So I had to look at him and I said, you know, I said, well, me and you are just alike. I said, because that was something. I said, in fact, this year for the May season, I said, uh, I had the same fear. I said, and that's every time that I hear of, oh, there's a guy lost, you know, they found the boat and not the person and yeah, so sure. forth and so on. I said, and this year, about a week or two before the May season started, they had a crabber that I guess fell out of his boat or whatever, for whatever reason, he was lost. And, uh, I was I was telling one of my friends I said man I hope I don't I hope I don't pick this you know body up in my net that that would be it's got to be a bad experience it has to be uh, you know just heartbreaking and just terrible 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 uh, you know I've seen plenty of dead animals and, and drowned animals and all this in my life but never any human people right. Never any people, you know, and, and and thank God that you know. And 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 he said, he said I was so happy. He said, yeah. but I seen you move. He said that's why I say you're my hero. He said I don't have to worry about pulling a body out in the water. He said you were alive. I said he said you're a survivor, you know. I said yeah. I said well, I said, it is what it is. I said but you still the hero of this story. I said because you were good enough to spot me and come pick me up. Wow, and I'm sure they're they're chartered fishing trip got cut a little short from there actually they had to... from where we were to sip a more points only in, in an outboard gets on on plane and you know does a relative speed probably about 40 ish something like that so they just brought you straight yeah there. they ran me straight to his camp uh whereupon he gave me uh some shorts and a shirt to put on and because up until then the only thing i had on was a pair of boxer briefs <laughs> And my life jacket. And your life jacket. That's it. Can't have the dead weight. That's how I was working the, the back deck. It's so hot. Yeah. And I had a pair of blue jean shorts on, and I got them wet and stuff, and I just stripped them off and said, ain't nobody out here. It's just me. It's hot as hell. So I was going back and forth from the cabin to the back deck in my underwear. <laughs> and that's all I had on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they, they ran me into his camp. And he called a friend of his that's got a camp just a row or two over. And he came over, uh, Mr. Vince Palumbo, another nice guy. And uh, he came there and picked me up, took me to his camp, uh, fed me. Uh, what was the meal? Gave me a cup of coffee, a bag of chips and a couple of ham sandwiches, you know. Nothing heavy, which I wouldn't have wanted to eat nothing heavy yeah, at that point. Yeah, your body still needed uh, to. It was uh, more water. I was still down in bottles of water one after the other. Uh, I think I was up to seven or eight at that time. 
And we grabbed a couple more bottles of water, and he said, man, he said, you ain't got to worry about calling nobody. He said, I'm going to take you home to Delco. So we got in his truck, and he drove me all the way home. And that's that was about that. You had you had family at your house where they you know no, were they nobody cons- nobody knew I was missing yet even because the boat you were still out on your your shrimping trip to them they figured I was still out there fishing. Wow, you know because this happened the second night I was gone, which a regular normal trip for me was three to five days so i was only like the third day yeah and then you show fourth, up fourth day and then i show up and your family has like, to be what when did yeah. you sink yeah last wednesday night thursday morning really <laughs> oh my gosh man that is uh that's got to be the craziest part you know i had left tuesday they're so used i fished tuesday night And then Wednesday, I was fishing again, and I went down Wednesday night. And your family's so accustomed to yeah, you I mean, going out and doing it. these solo fishing trips, and that's yeah. what you do for a living, and that's what you've done for a living for so long. And mm-hmm. and then you come back with a now, story like... If I had been gone three or four days, yeah, and then sunk, and was still missing for a couple of more days... Well, then, yeah, a lot of my friends and family, they'd have been like, uh, something's wrong. Of course. Something's wrong. George never stays longer than that, which is also uh, the few times I've made trips longer than that has been because I went out there and tried here, tried there, tried here, tried there, and didn't catch anything. Mm -hmm. Then I don't have anything that's going to spoil because I don't have nothing on the boat. Or, you know, I might have a. 100 pounds or something like that whoop de do right if i end up throwing that in the water or giving it to people for fish bait you know because it's getting old it's no big deal right but if i spend two or three days in the process of looking for some decent shrimp to, to fish for well then that extends my trip sure but once i get on some decent shrimp and start working that well no matter if they only last a little while or they last a long time, once I have several hundred pounds of nice marketable shrimp that I think I can sell, uh, it's not to my benefit to be any longer than about three days. Because you got to figure then I have to come in, I have to set up, I have to put the word out, you know, and, and try to market these shrimp. Before they go bad. Before they go bad. Uh, or before they even start to go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You because can't. if I'm selling them to the public, I want them as fresh and pretty as possible. Of course. So that you can increase your, your customer base, you know. Uh, you don't want to have some, yeah, it was okay, you know, but yeah. eh, kind of questionable shrimp. Well, you're not going to survive. No, of course. Because it's real competitive. If your shrimp are not really pretty, you're not going to make it. And timing is everything. Yep. Yeah. It's all about the time, you know. A lot of them like to come in on, on Fridays and Saturdays. I always used to like to make my trip and leave on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, head out. And then fish Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, possibly Wednesday, 
and come in Wednesday night or Thursday gives me that first day I'm gonna sell some to the people that have orders and whatnot they'll come pick them up whenever sure so that gets taken care of the Thursday the Friday you have the regular weekend crowd starts and then you have all day Friday all day Saturday all day Sunday to get rid of your shrimp to try to make it back out for the following Monday that was always what I tried to aim for. Didn't always turn out that way, but that was what I tried. Of course, yeah. See right there, I would have, I would have fished that Wednesday night, Thursday morning. I would have fished again Thursday night into Friday morning. Quite possibly, if I didn't have enough by then, I might have pushed it one more night and then came in uh, like mid-morning Saturday. Or I'd have been in early morning Friday, one of the two, depending mm. on how it went. That was my plan. And boy, did that plan get it kind of backfired a little bit. Had a couple of snags in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mr. well, I came back Saturday morning, mid morning, just just not with the way you wanted. Boat. <laughs> it's almost uh, like it was minus a whole lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's next for well uh, for your recovery? Obviously, yeah, I gotta get a little bit better. I got a few options. Uh, I got a good buddy of mine came and meet me uh, there Thursday, second day after I was back, and tells me, uh, "Well, you ready to jump in the saddle again?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Well, he said I just bought this little wooden boat." He said, I'm going to see if you want to come help me put the engine back in it. Well, I'm familiar with the boat. I'm the one who put the engine back together. He said, yeah. He said, Don told me you the guy to put the engine in the boat. He said, you'd be able to do that. I said, well, I'll give you a hand, dude. You're my partner. I said, I'll go help you for nothing as soon as I get a little better. No, he says, I'm, I'm going to pay you for that. He says, uh, by the way, he says, after we get it going, he says, if you want, he says, uh, you can come run it for me. I started laughing and I said, have you really thought about this real well? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't trust me to run a boat. I just sunk my own. It was twice the size of what you want me to run. <laughs> you know, that might not be a good move. <laughs> I've been psychologically uh, evaluated lately because I, I think you might have lost some marbles yeah. there, dude. Have you reviewed my resume? Or <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you better think about who you're hiring here. I have a good record. And he laughed about it. He said, he said yeah, that's just one of them things. I said, yeah, you're right. I said, but I said, really, I could have prevented it. I wouldn't have been so greedy, I guess. But I mean, it, it, it's gotten to the point where you have to take advantage of every possible chance you can, mm -hmm. or you're just not gonna make any money. It's hard, real hard. It's like, uh, like Forrest Gump said in the movie, shrimping ain't easy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That was based off of actual events. <coughs> right. <clears throat> so I guess the uh the outcome is is to be determined if Yeah. 
Yeah. If Mr. George Romero's uh, uh, fishing excursions oh, will I'll continue. I'll be out there one way or another. Oh, yeah. Um, just I feel better out on the water than I do on land, so it's just a fact. Do you think an incident like this, I mean, obviously sits with you for a while, but do you think it's something uh, that you can, uh, I guess, oh yeah. mentally recover well, from? Well, we, we, we sunk the, the houseboat that we were staying on. Well, we called it our houseboat. It was just a little lugger. Uh, old 1940s style uh, semi-flat bottom cypress hull with a little step-down cabin on it. My brothers and I had that, and we'd use that to stay on and to keep our big chest, ice chests on when we used to get on that for a living. That was our uh, uh, mothership, in other words, and we used the smaller boats to run around set gillnets. Right. And we sunk it in the past. The second night, we took it out. We spent the first night in the middle of a million bay. Thank God that hose didn't break then. And this is a boat that we had reclaimed. Someone gave us, and we put a, found an engine, put an engine in it, and repaired it, and fixed up the leaks and whatnot. And so what we'd stay on when we were out there. We'd put a few bunks in it and whatnot. And we'd spend stretches of time on that boat a long time. Uh, a lot of it spent in the past where I was picked up at in all those reefs. Wow. But we'd park it on the south side. They had a channel would run south side of uh, Southwest Pass Bay. We had some big steel tanks and whatnot, and all the oyster boats would go in there and nose up for the night. But we'd park our boat there and go set out gill nets, and it would just stay parked there until we were done and ready to go home. And the second night we were out, we were right there, nosed up against the bank, and I noticed the boat just went <laughs> like this. And I'm like, man, something's wrong, and I'm up in the top bunk. My older brother says, yeah, we're leaning kind of weird. I said, yeah. And it's pitch black dark. He gets out the bunk. <clears throat> and the boards that would cover the, the bilge had floated away. Oh, no. He went, stepped out that bunk, and boosh, he's in the water up to his waist. He said, hell, we sunk. Oh, no. It was all hands on deck, man. We come flying out that cabin, threw the engine hatch open on the back deck, and the water's almost to the top of the engine. What the hell? <laughs> it's amazing how much water you can pump with three confused scared coon asses and a one five gallon bucket oh man all and hands it was on the room for one person at a time so you'd sling that water as fast as you could and then pass the bucket <laughs> and we just made a, a a relay line like that we'd go around and around taking turns fast as we could finally we got ahead of it seen the water gushing in reached down there put my hand oh shit it's the hose to the sea cop shut the damn valve, bailed out the rest of the water. Hmm, wonderful. Well, body in is getting close. And this is the middle of the night, always. This is like at midnight. <laughs> yeah, why would you need a sea? <laughs> yeah, why, why would this not happen in the daytime when you're awake and stuff, you know? And uh, yeah, by before dark that night, the engine was running. Man. Uh, we went and ran our nets. 
to go get our fish out the nets. Did that first. Soon as we got done with that, well, while my two brothers were doing that, I pulled the starter off the engine, pulled the batteries out from down there, washed them off and whatnot, got them reconnected, started charging them up, whatever I could. We had a little makeshift uh, uh, engine, uh, charged batteries. It was an alternator connected to a little lawnmower engine. <laughs> started putting a charge on our batteries. That was our lights and television. We had a little 12-volt television and a 12-volt light hanging on the back deck and a couple of them in the cabin. That was our, we didn't have no generator, light plant, none of this. Of course, it was mostly wintertime when mm -hmm. we'd fish gill nets, and uh, it was cold. It was yeah, more it's not a 110 needed. degrees yeah, outside. Yeah. But sometimes it was pretty warm. Yeah. But on the edge of the Gulf like that, at night, it's not that bad. Uh, we had windows all around the cabin, so we had screen on all of them. So we made sure we were done with our chores and whatnot, fish put up, iced up, whatever, all the boats taken care of well before dark. And we'd get in the cabin, put the screen up over the back door, and wouldn't go outside till the next day. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, we were, uh, while they were running the nets, I drained all out the engine, yada, yada, so forth, so on the clutch and all that. And started writing a list. Well, we need a gallon and a half of gear oil. We need three gallons of engine oil. We need this, that, the other. Wrote all this down. I said, we're going to need some more charcoal because I'm about to dry out the starter. Took the starter off the engine, flushed it with some fresh water, shook it out best I could, lit the barbecue pit. Stuck that starter in the barbecue pit. Wow. Did the same thing with the alternator. Pulled it off, washed it real good, some fresh water, threw it in the barbecue pit on a low, low fire. You know, lit the barbecue pit, let it burn down where there was no more flames. Sure, yeah. Kind of choked it down to where it was just kind of warm, you know, 250, 300 or so. That's what they do when they rebuild them. Right, of course. Why you would wrap you them not? with the wire and they have that, 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 uh, 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 varnish on them and they bake them melt the varnish and creates the coils so as long as I didn't let it get too too hot uh, it was fine uh, one of the guys another fisherman had passed by and he just said he said what oh you barbecue y'all barbecuing today I said yeah man I said we sunk last night I said look what look what's on the pit I said, check these, these ribeyes out. And I picked that lid up. <laughs> See, what the hell? I said, yeah, GM starter. <laughs> we haven't started for supper tonight. <laughs> yeah, I was baking the starter. So as uh, soon as they got done running the nets, uh, my younger brother and older brother got back to the boat. I said, okay, look, this is what we need. I said, I done tried the, the starter while it was still kind of warm. I said, and she turns over and everything. I said, then I put it back on the <laughs> on the heat to make sure I get all the moisture out. He said, okay. He said, well, I'm going to shoot out for Delcom. So he took the list I gave him, shot back to Delcom, the filter numbers I had all on there and everything, whatever we needed. He came back to town, 
gathered up what we needed, came back and made it back out in the middle of the afternoon, I guess, three, four o'clock, something like that. And when the sun was going down, he was hitting the starter button and we fired that motor up. Wow. Man, it's it's amazing to hear all these these stories from but, you. I mean, that that's that's the type of things that we just took for granted. You of just course. do what you got to do. And and that's kind of back to my original thought of meeting you. It's like you were there's nobody else that could have survived what you survived. You were you were training for these well, these that, that, situations. There's, there's you know? a lot of people that survived a lot worse than that. Not that and, I've met, and, I personally, but uh at my age, yeah. That's what I'm Most saying. Most of them are gone. Personally, man. Most of them are gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just honored. I'm said, honored that we shared the last Daddy, name. He took us hunting and this and that, but we wouldn't have made it. <laughs> no. We wouldn't have survived. No, I'm shit. telling I you. Said, well, I said, you know, I said, I'm not going to make it out no more than what it was. I was lucky in a lot of instances. Like I say, was lucky that they burnt the marsh. The lucky thing that uh, my back deck got came off and flipped over. I was able to ride that for a day and a half. Right. <clears throat> you know all these things. You got an angel looking out for you, oh, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Right on, right on your shoulder. And like I said, I'm just honored to share the last name as as uh, you, Miss, <laughs> Mr. George Romero, right here. Well, you're one of the few. I know it. You know those other Romeros that live on Yardberia and stuff. They don't even want to know us. <laughs> <laughs> I, Craig Romero and all them, man. They got the money. They don't know us. <laughs> well, I feel like I feel like you and I were destined to to know each other in in a but, some form, and and I really am, yeah. am grateful to have this you conversation know, it, with you today. Like, it's like my my stepson was telling me after uh, I was I was pretty rough on my kids. They had to work. I kept them. I kept them busy. And uh, he told me, he said, you know, Dad, this was around 2000, a little bit before the, the 2000, the crazy Y2K scare and stuff, sure. people freaking out and stockpiling food and panicking in the street and all this. And he's telling me, Daddy, he said, I'm so glad you raised us up the way you did. He said, with a little common sense and whatnot. He said, these people here in Lafayette, he said, they're just totally freaking nuts. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, Paul? He said, man, he said, I got some of these people, some of these guys, he says that, and girls, he said, that I work with in the restaurant over here. He said, they are absolutely panicking about this Y2K stuff. Oh, man, all the computers are going to shut down. I started laughing. I said, and what? <laughs> he said, that's what I told him. He said, that's what I told him. And what? So what? <laughs> Don't need computers. You know, he said, they kind of young. He said, but he said, even I can remember. He said, we didn't have computers. I said, you ought to tell them. They ought to think about what they did before they had electricity. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, I knew a lot of families out in the country that still did not have electricity. You drive to their house, kerosene lanterns and wood stove and right. stuff like this. They had no electricity. Hell, how, and, and when I was a kid, we had electricity. And we had a big window fan. And you'd crack the window in your bedroom just a little bit, certain amount where you had a good rush of air. Yeah. 
didn't want to open it all the way. All the air was going to pass on you, and the other four bedrooms was going to get zero. So you had a certain amount. You could open your window by your bed to let some wind pass over you. We were fortunate enough to have that. But we didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have air conditioning until I was almost out of high school. And now, when I leave here, I'm going back in air conditioning because yeah. I can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know? But it, it's like, yeah, there was nothing for us to go duck hunting. Right. Oh, we're going to go duck hunting for a few days at the camp. With no uh, 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 modern conveniences at the camp. No. You had a toilet that was operated by the rainwater that went into this big cistern outside that was up on legs. And that was about all the modern amenities you had. You had a gas stove inside hooked to a propane bottle. And usually we'd bring a fully charged battery every week or two. And we had one 12-volt light bulb hanging over the, the table. Sim simpler times, I'd say. Yeah, and we'd spend days and days and days, and really, we went fine. We were suffering. Right. They're just normal. I mean, when we get hurricanes in this area, nothing to be eight, nine, ten days without electricity, gas. You can't go to the station. You can't go to the store or none of that for a week or two, you know. That's normal. If you ever survived any hurricanes in this area, I mean, that's not a big stretch of imagination. They panicking. My son says, yeah, they panicking over here for that. He says, I told him, man, what's wrong with y'all? Y'all don't need all that. What are we going to do? You won't be able to go to the bank. And how are we going to get food? You know, maybe none of the stores will be open. And make sure you got a big bag of rice, dude. <laughs> things get too bad. He says, we ain't working over here at the restaurant. He says, I'm just going to go meet my dad down there in the country. He said, I know we're going to eat. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, worst come to worst. He said, we ain't got no food in the house. He said, I know dad's going to grab a gun off the shelf. He said, we're going to go out and shoot something. <laughs> Skin it and eat it. <laughs> See, it might be raccoon, neutral rat, alligator. It might be one of the neighbor's cows. He said, but we're going to eat. Yeah. I said, yeah. Living off the you land. You got that right. I said, we're going to survive. The Cajun people are accustomed to. One uh, way or the other. Yeah. It, it, it just kind of goes with the territory. It's true. They got dumped on these coasts. And uh, they, the ones that dumped them off figured they'd just die. But they made it all the Come way down. Find out, they did pretty damn good. Yeah. A lot of them would. Very little help from the outside world, like the people that were in that settlement, Chenier Tig. <coughs> Back then, there was no television, nothing. I don't know when it was, the 1800s or 1900s. The only access they had to land was some internal canals that went from the settlement on the ridges by the Gulf Coast that went inland to like towards uh, Pecan Island area or mm -hmm. something. And there you could get up on that ridge and take a wagon, wagon road, you know, east, west, whatever. But other than that, you couldn't even access the place like from the Gulf unless you anchored your ship a ways offshore, jumped in a rowboat and rode to land. 
Yeah, because the marsh. Because, uh, uh, well, that, that it's just the sand beach with the shell and whatnot. And then it goes up to these couple of ridges that run with these big oak trees on it. Right. And it's my understanding, I never went there actually myself, but it was my understanding that at one point in time they had houses, a general store, church, school, farms, blacksmith shop, you know, you name it. It was just a regular settlement. Sure. Cadian Village. Yep. And they survived there until a couple of bad hurricanes. And the only survivors were the ones that climbed up in those big oak trees and chained themselves and their families to the branches. Wow. A lot of them were found drowned dead in their attics. The water started coming up. They, they had nowhere to go. Everybody climbed up in the attic and then they didn't have the capability to get through the attic onto the roof. Wow. And they were drowned in the attics. Really sad. It sad is. Thing, it, and know? there was no uh, radar to tell them yeah. when the hurricane was Same coming. Same thing happened and... to a lot of people that direction for Hurricane Audrey. Same thing for Rita and Ike. No other place to go. Go as high as you can, and that's all you can do. The coastland is is certainly such an interesting place to yeah grow yeah, up. It's a great and, place to live and and whatnot. They do have its dangers, but uh, I much prefer to deal with that than you know all these constant super mega tornadoes like they have in Kansas and Illinois and stuff like this. Granted, we get a few tornadoes too, uh, but I don't think they're as large and cause quite as much destruction as those places. <laughs> yeah. All in all. Yeah, all in all, I feel like the weather patterns might be might be shifting a bit. We're getting wildfires. Yeah, we're starting to get some crazy. Uh, the desert is but flooding. There's, yeah. there's, you know. That's like all the global warming crap. I mean, to me, it's pretty obvious. Uh, they know for a fact that the Earth's had warm periods for hundreds of thousands of years, and then they've had hundreds and thousands of years of ice ages where the majority of everything that's land today was covered by a mile deep of ice. Hmm. Um, the earth does this naturally. There's nothing, no insects like you or I or 50 billion humans can affect that much. Granted, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that so many million tons of CO2 or this, that, and the other might not accelerate or decelerate what's happening, but it's not going to change it. The Earth's going to do what it's going to do. And to those that think, oh, we affect the planet that much, I wish I had my boat going down on tape so I could say, look, see if you was right behind me, this is what Mother Nature does. That's the power she's got. And she ain't even paying attention right now. 
when the earth decides to do something, it's going to do it. And no matter what we as puny human beings, we overestimate ourselves greatly. Nature does what she's going to do. And we don't have the power to control any of it. It's a lot of bull. You know, they, 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 they're pushing this stuff way too far. I'm no scientist, but it just doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. But, uh, and you have, you know, now uh, lived to tell the tale, uh, many tales, as, as oh, yeah. we, we have uh, sat down for, for 90 minutes to, to hear your different uh, levels of survival and... and uh, Again, man, I'm just honored to sit down with you. Really appreciate the time, and and I know uh, I know you got a lot of life left to live. So it's well that that that's all in the perspective you take it. You know, every day, <laughs> so every day. Somebody asks me, they said, "Well, how old are you?" Well, depends what you're asking. Are you talking about hours, days, months, years, or is it like a vehicle? Right. Because you Miles. can take a vehicle that's only two years old, but it belonged to some farmer or something like this, and he done bumped this thing through the fields and beat the hell out of it. And you look at it, and it's like, damn, that thing must have 300,000 miles on it. It's only got 60,000, 70,000. It's all beat up. Might have some other guy. Works a nice job in town or something, you know, an office or something, driving the same vehicle. Hell, he's been driving it for 10 years and almost 200,000 miles, and it still looks almost like new. The type of mileage and the type of time spent on it is what... It's true. It's what determines actual age. It's true. How, much, how much life you live each day. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's What well, seems to me like you live What type of mileage? It. It's not only just the mileage. Uh, a vehicle that runs up and down, well... It, it, in this state, yeah, I guess that would matter, but in the yeah. average state, you know, on a nice interstate, four-lane highway, steady speed, just cruising back and forth, you can put a couple hundred thousand miles on a vehicle, and it's in great shape. Sure. Uh, if you put a hundred thousand miles on the back roads and the off-road, not in the fields and potholes and mud holes and out in the woods and whatnot, yeah, 100,000 miles, that vehicle's about shot. <coughs> Wheels are rattling and pieces are falling off, and I mean, it's, just, it's just how it is. It seems like, uh, you know, certain people choose to live their life to the fullest each day, and uh, that oh, yeah. could be defined in I, other ways. You I know? worked many, many jobs, uh, worked offshore, Worked at a plant, worked in the oil field. I mean, uh, worked commercial fishing, fish crabs for a living for a while. Uh, ran a slaughterhouse for several years. And uh, yeah, I always preferred to work outside or with my hands. Uh, with a head, head lab technician or carborundum in your Iberia for about nine years and uh, that was okay but 
too much office politics and bullshit and I mean, I really wasn't cooped up so much because, uh, yeah, I had an office in the lab and stuff, but I also would go out and let a plant for samples and all this and, you know, it was all over the place. But still, I considered that a desk job. Right. That wasn't me. It just wasn't me. Uh, I prefer to be outside and working with my hands. Yeah, man. I think uh, you can tell there's a little bit of mileage. I can. On my hands, I was about to say, bit. you know, your hands look like those, so other people's can, <coughs> you know, yep, eat the shrimp. So, oh yeah. <laughs> well, Mister George, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so 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 Thank much, you, sir. For it was good down. speaking with you, and it really was. It was an uh, honor to like meet I you. say. It was. It's the one thing that my my main thing I can tell people is. Those little uh, suspender strap looking life jackets and inflatable ones, those things are great. Because <laughs> the ones that the other ones I had on board, I have the Coast Guard approved offshore vests, you know, and that. And them big old bulky things are like this, and they're out to here and that. You can't work with that. No. You will never wear it. You'll never have it on when you need to have it on. Right, right. And you're living proof. Whereas <laughs> that little one with those straps, I saw those and I had that idea in the back of my head. And I said, you know, I'm always out fishing by myself. Number one. Number two, uh, if I fall over, even if I have the boat out of gear, not running or nothing. It's a good chance I'm not going to be able to grab nothing. I'll never catch back up to that boat with the wind and the current pushing it. Sure. Wouldn't be a bad idea to have a life jacket that I could tolerate and wear. But these standard ones are just so bulky and so big and so hot. You're not going to wear them. You're not right. going to actually wear them when you should. So uh, I saw those and uh, my son ordered me one. I had him order me one. And... Uh, that was a big contributor wow uh to my survival because i just got in the habit i put me a hook right by the exit door that i would always walk out of from the cabin and when i would leave the steering wheel and walk out the back door it was right there right i mean it was almost on top of the the doorknob making you so i had to literally it. brush it right to go out the door so it make you really think about it and uh, I won't say I, I put it on 100% of the time, because I didn't. But, I mean, when it was slick calm and I was just going to check a net and put it back in the water or whatever, you know, routine stuff, and it was real calm, I usually wouldn't put it on. When it was that night, wind blowing, rough as hell, uh, boat kind of pitching and rocking and whatnot, yeah, I did. I got into a habit where throw it on, I was used to it, I'd throw it over my head, Pass my two arms in it, one click, and it's on. Go out the back door, do what I had to do, yada, yada. Do all my work, sort out my shrimp and stuff. Go back in the cabin, back and forth and stuff. When I was done, if I wasn't going back on the deck for an hour or two, then sometimes I'd take it off, sometimes I wouldn't. But I got in the habit of wearing it. Any time I thought be a little slippery, you know, might trip or something. 
And uh, thank God I did. That's great. It's truly a lifesaver. And I would recommend that to anyone. That's amazing. Hopefully they hear this story and that life, that's, life jacket that's company That's my main will, uh, thing. You know, they, they like that much and they're real handy. They make the ones that are automatic. You pull in the water, whatever, the salt water or any, any kind of water just sets them off. Right. It's like a little tablet or whatever, water, uh, melts in water. Uh, I didn't have that. I had the manual one. So if I slipped and fell on the deck, hit my head, knocked myself out and fell in the water, well, I was screwed. Right. right. But I, I couldn't see the one having the automatic one because sometimes when it's rough or it's raining or whatnot, yeah. I get all this water, I stay soaking wet. It's gonna be forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Blowing up on me. I couldn't have that. So I had the manual one. But uh, that thing was pretty neat. That's amazing. It worked. When I pulled that little string, it just blew up and, and, and stayed aired up the whole time. Well, thank God for that life jacket. <coughs> oh, yeah. That was a blessing. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hold the gravy, listeners. After hearing this man's story, I am grateful that my two feet are on land. I can promise you that. And uh, I, I know that he is too. And uh, he's just living his life to the fullest every day and, and grateful to see another day. I, I know that. And special thanks to his son for getting me in touch with his father. I know he's uh, he's had a long road to recovery the last few weeks and uh, still has some bumps and bruises. So Mr. George, if you're listening to this, thank you again for taking the time out of your day and visited with, visiting with me and Delcom and, and telling me your full story. And I really look forward to, to hanging out with you and your family once again. And if this story has told you anything, you know, it, it's not easy work to do what these, these people do to provide fresh Gulf seafood for your home, for your restaurants, and, and for your community. And it's getting more difficult, as, as you heard, and we really need to pay mind to importing and, and really focusing on purchasing from our local fishermen. And, and I think that's what this whole podcast has been about over the years. And I think this story really just just sums it all up for you. And, and here's, here's a prime example of, of life and death and what he goes through to provide quality seafood for us and, and for Louisiana and we should be paying that back to these brave fishermen and uh, I don't have much more to say about it but thank you all again for listening to Hold the Gravy my name is Hunter Romero we'll see you all Saturday September 2nd at the Delcom Seafood and Farmers Market at Bayou Carlin Cove in Delcom Louisiana thank you so much for listening to Hold the Gravy see you next time